So I was asleep on the couch Friday morning because my dog is stupid and wakes me up at 3 a.m. to let him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I passed back out on the couch and mom came down probably two hours later. So she turned on, <laughs> she turned on, what is that? Nailed it. She turned on Nailed It oh, on yeah. Netflix. And they were making some sort of snake cake or pastry or something okay well in my dream which turned out to be a nightmare oh uh i dreamed that i had two more ducklings than i have mm-hmm. two two more of my of my little emo ducks emo ducks yeah little emo ducks that are so cute so i found a snake in one of those not the ceramic planters the actual yeah yeah, yeah stone yeah. planters yeah. And, you know, I threw some dirt on it. Go away. <laughs> dirt. Yeah, that'll some, yeah, stop some, a snake. Some dirt on it. To, for some reason, Dreamy was like, ah, it'll get rid of the snake. Yeah, of course. Just cover it with dirt. But then, lo and behold, I wake up the next day and I go outside and I'm missing three ducklings. Oh. And one of my duckling has its legs missing. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, I'm laughing about it now, but I hated it in the dream. So I grabbed, we have a macheting, a machete. So I grabbed that and I started walking around banging on the sides of all the planters and against the side of the house trying to find the snake. And then the snake, it like slithered up and started talking to me. Okay. And I can't remember what it said, but I was pissed off at it. And then I woke up. Wow. That just. Wow. Guys, I hate snakes. <laughs> Alrighty, then. I also had a nightmare. Oh, good. It did not start off as a nightmare. Uh-huh. Um, in a dream, I was in this house, and I was with my mom, and we were going into, like, this room. It was, like, a basement, and we had our flashlights because it was dark. There were no lights in there, and... I turned and I saw someone standing there, like in the dark, facing the wall. But it just turned out to be a mannequin. You know, it was like um, like a creepy old woman. Yeah. Um, and she was like facing the wall, but it was just a mannequin. Yeah. And I was like, oh wow, let's go scare somebody else with this. So we brought somebody else in. I don't know who it was. Wait, actually, I think it was an actor from The Good Place. <laughs> But we brought them in and we're like, oh, wow, what's going on down here? And then we shined our light on that. And then my light just went over a little bit and there was somebody standing there. (laughs) And it was a woman, but she didn't stay a woman. She like turned into a child. That's creepy. Like a little girl. No. With black eyes. No, we are not doing the black-eyed children. No. And, (laughs) like, it was so creepy because she wasn't just there. Mm -hmm. She was trying to get into our bodies. Oh, no. And I could... So demon. I could feel her stepping into my body. Ah. Like, it felt so weird. Like, you know when, um... Oh, God. I don't even know how to explain it. It's like a tightness in your body where, like, if you tense up your arm or something, you know how you can, like, still feel it? Like, you kind of want to move it a little bit? Yeah. That's how it felt, like, with her stepping into my body. And I was trying to, like, force her out. 
like when um when you get a cramp in your leg and your all your muscles tighten up yeah like but not the cramp hurt. feeling but yeah 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 it's exactly like that that kind of like tingly like tightness t- yeah yeah that's exactly how it felt and are you okay <laughs> it was very weird i've been listening to um this new i mean i'd been i've been having nightmares for the past month <laughs> um uh, and for some reason, I, decided, I decided that I wanted to start listening to the Magnus archives. And Maybe that's why? Well, this was after my nightmares started. Oh, so I've been having them for then. a while. And so, like, somebody told me I should listen to the Magnus archives because it's a good podcast. So I started listening to it, and my dreams just got more and more fucked up <laughs> <laughs> until that. Um, Your dreams so. are just getting a little out there, Grace. They... Yeah, yeah. I um had this other night where I couldn't sleep, mm-hmm. and every time I would get to a point where I would be, like, between, like, awake and asleep, where I was, like, asleep, but still a little still bit kind of aware, awake. I would jerk awake because in my mind I could see... Like, you know when you look at something that's got a bright background behind it? Mm-hmm. And when you close your eyes, you can see you can still the see shape. the silhouette. Yeah. Yeah. Well, every time I would close my eyes and get to that, like, sleeping point, I would see the silhouette of a woman standing in a doorway. <laughs> and every time I would see that, I would think, oh, shit, she's here. And then I would wake up. Sleep paralysis? And it kept on happening over and over again. Yeah. Until I took another melatonin and <laughs> passed out. Way to avoid a demon. Take melatonin. But it just kept happening over and over. It happened at least three or four times before the I was same like, night? Or? Yeah, the same night. Huh. Over and over again. Every time I would go to sleep. What were be you like, doing before before you went to bed did you watch something or i don't know because i know the reasoning for mine is because i was worried about the ducklings while i was going to sleep because that was the first night i put them outside oh oh i was watching lock and key (laughs) (laughs) so it might have been the well lady i guess it did kind of have a similar silhouette to the well lady yeah huh There you go. I'm helping you solve your dreams. So I'm I was gonna say I'm great. <laughs> hey, I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> who are you? Who am I? Who are we all? I am apparently Rachel. I'm just gonna stick stick a name tag on. Who are you? Today? Today. Um I guess I'm Grace. Okay, that's you know, good guess. Uh welcome to the podcast. Do we know our podcast name? It's Myths and Misfortunes, right? I don't know. Maybe uh, 
magic and mayhem maybe mayhem it's yeah. a ham and may <laughs> all right we're a paranormal and true crime podcast and each week we pick somewhere in the world and base our stories on that place and or surrounding areas like mine today kind of yeah so, so like last week we're technically we're supposed to be in chicago but yes. we're diverging a little bit yeah a little bit all righty so if you don't remember we did our first chicago story and we had history yeah and then we decided we weren't doing the history so we're not doing the history today because again we're still in chicago because we're still in chicago <laughs> so my story for this week Excuse you, you stupid fruit fly! I swear, where are they coming from? Because there don't were none. Know. There were none when I when I came in, and then when we started recording in the last episode, they just showed up. I don't know, and I think I got it, but then it disappeared. So I don't demon. know where it went. Whatever. Okay. It's a demon. A demon. My story this week is the Tylenol murders of <gasps> 1982. Ah! Horrible! Horrible! My sources are, look, I try to make this as educational as possible. I went to Google Scholar. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my sources. Deepblue.lib.umic.edu. All right. Wikipedia.org. PBS.org. NewYorkTimes.com. Content.time.com. CrimeMuseum.org. Patch.com. TheVintageNews.com, ABCNews.go.com, ChicagoReader.com, Time.com, Gizmodo.com, OU.edu, and a paper titled The Tylenol Terrorist, Death in a Bottle, written by Rachel Bell. No wonder it took you so fucking long to write this. Yep, and believe it or not, it's still only three pages in a paragraph. Yeah, but it's your three pages. Valid. Um, we sort of switched places this week. I had all of my stories done last weekend because I thought we were going to record last weekend, but we didn't. So I've been done. Um, and I was still typing my story up this morning. (laughs) Yeah. It's just one of those weeks. I'm normally the procrastinator here, so. I was this week. I was only not a procrastinator, on accident, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you would have been right with me. Yeah. Anywho, on to the story. At early dawn on September 29th, 1982. At what? Early dawn. Early dawn. I heard, I, th- I thought you said early nom. <laughs> and I was like, early nom. Early in the Vietnam War right <laughs> No, they were nomming their breakfast. Nom, 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 nom. Gotcha, gotcha. At early dawn on September 29th, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman came into her parents' room complaining of a sore throat and a runny nose. You know, typical cold symptoms. Mm -hmm. Her parents gave her an extra-strength Tylenol and sent her back to bed. However, only a few hours later, at 7 a.m., the parents found Mary on the bathroom floor unconscious. She was rushed to the hospital and later pronounced dead. The doctors initially suspected a stroke to be the cause. Oh, weird. However, for a 12-year-old, that is very odd. Yeah. The same day, a 27-year-old postal worker named Adam Janus, I'm going to say Janus, 
was found by paramedics laying on the floor. His breathing was very labored and his blood pressure was dangerously low. He also was rushed to the hospital but died shortly after. It was believed that he had had a massive heart attack, also very unusual for only a 27-year-old. Yeah. Adam's family gathered at his house in order to mourn his passing and discuss funeral arrangements. His brother and sister-in-law, Stanley and Teresa, who were 25 and 19, both were suffering from headaches from the stress of everything that had just happened. Yeah. And took a capsule from Adam's extra-strength Tylenol that had been left sitting out on the counter. To the family's dismay, a short time later, the two suddenly collapsed to the floor. An ambulance was immediately called, and paramedics were quick to attempt to resuscitate the couple. However, Stanley died that day, and Teresa two days later. The death of the three family members at once was very suspicious to Dr. Thomas Kim. Yeah. (laughs) And upon discussing the matter with John B. Sullivan of the Rocky Mountain Poison Center, it was determined that cyanide might have been the cause of death for the three members of the family. Mm -hmm. Blood tests, of course, were being ran. Over the following several days, three more tragic deaths occurred. 27-year-old Mary Rayner, 35-year-old Paula Prince, and 35-year-old Mary McFarland. That's how, so how many people is that? It's one, two, seven. three, four, five, six. Okay. Yeah. Seven. All of them had taken Tylenol shortly before their untimely deaths. Makes you afraid to take Tylenol. Back then, yeah. Yeah. It was at this point that investigators realized... That there might be a connection between the apparent poisoning deaths and Tylenol. Tests were performed on the bottles acquired from the homes of the victims. All tests showed that cyanide was indeed present in the bottles. Johnson & Johnson, or rather McNeil Consumer Products, who was a subsidiary to Johnson & Johnson, was immediately informed of the deaths. In October of 1982, a massive recall was announced for the Tylenol products. Right. Doctors, hospitals, and wholesalers were warned of the dangers if they continued the use of the product. Warnings were issued throughout the Chicago metropolitan area over a loudspeaker, warning residents to discontinue the use of any and all Tylenol products. Since the bottles of... God, I hate that I'm saying Tylenol so much. Since the bottles of Tylenol were purchased in all different parts of the city and from different pharmaceutical companies, police could rule out that it wasn't done on the manufacturing level. And since the deaths only occurred in the Chicago area, the poisoning wasn't done during production. Mm -hmm. Police believed that the culprit behind the crimes most likely went to supermarkets and drugstores over a period of several weeks. During this time, they likely added the cyanide to the capsules, then returned to the stores and placed the bottles back on the shelves. In addition to the five bottles that were collected from the the victims, three other bottles were found. The profile of the suspect who had done this was a man in his 20s, a loner who had some sort of knowledge about science, but who really wasn't that successful in life. <laughs> uh, he could have done it for attention. Or he had some sort of personal vendetta against the parent company, Johnson & Johnson. 
Another explanation is that he might have targeted one of the victims, but Mm -hmm. he had to kill the others in order to mask the motive of the crime. Due to widespread media panic, people began to not use any type of painkiller whatsoever for fear of everything that had happened. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Anyone who did happen to use Tylenol would call hospitals out of fear of possible poisoning. Wow. Even nationwide. Really? This prompted Seattle's Poison Control Center to inform citizens that if they had been poisoned with cyanide, that they would be dead before they could ever call a hospital. (laughs) Uh. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. Regardless, hundreds of patients were admitted to the hospitals around the country under the concerns of cyanide poisoning. However, other than the original seven deaths, no more occurred. Less than a month after the murder, a 48-year-old amateur chemist was arrested. He apparently worked as a dock hand at a warehouse that supplied Tylenol to two of the stores where the tainted bottles were sold. Yeah. He became the primary suspect at the time when he admitted to having worked on a project that involved the use of cyanide. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What? When investigators searched his apartment, they found various weapons, two one-way tickets to Thailand, (laughs) and a book that described how to kill people by stuffing poison (laughs) into capsules. Could you be any more fucking obvious, (laughs) dude? Shit. However, they lacked significant hard evidence to convict the guy with the murders. You know, I feel like a book entitled How to (laughs) Kill People with... I... What? But he didn't have... I know. Yeah. Well, they couldn't charge him for that. They did charge him with the illegal possession of firearms. Right. And he was sent to jail, but eventually was released on a $6,000 bond. I feel like that's too low. Yeah. But, you know, for only having illegal weapons. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. He was, however, not the only suspect. During the exact same time period, Johnson & Johnson began receiving handwritten extortion letters demanding $1 million for an end to the poisonings. Jinkies. The extortionist asked for the company to respond to his demands via the Chicago Tribune. However, they did not comply. They did, however, contact the authorities, though, who then traced the letter back to a man named James W. Lewis. Mm Mm-hmm who was a tax accountant and known con artist. (laughs) He also was apparently um, sought after for connections with the brutal murder of an elderly man in Kansas City. Jesus. And a jewel robbery. Got quite a few things going on there. Yeah. Got a lot to juggle. Yeah, that's, that's a lot to juggle. The police quickly issued a warrant for Lewis's arrest. A massive search for Lewis and his wife was issued, leading investigators across several states. During the last week of October, yet another contaminated bottle of Tylenol was found. That same week, a letter from Robert Richardson, which was an alias of Lewis's, Mm. was sent to the Chicago Tribune. 
It stated that he and his wife had nothing to do with the Tylenol murders and that they were unarmed. They were specifically unarmed. Okay. Like throwing the white flag up. We're unarmed. Also, we didn't do it. (laughs) We didn't kill no one. I mean, we're on the run, but we didn't do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Using aliases and everything. We didn't do it, though. Only a month later, FBI agents were finally given their biggest tip regarding Lewis's location. After a 10-week search on December 13, 1982, FBI agents surrounded Lewis in the reading room of the New York Public Library. Oh. He was immediately arrested and taken into custody. During the interview, Lewis denied any and everything to do with the poisonings and even denied writing the extortion letter to Johnson & Johnson. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I don't know what you're talking about. He didn't do it, but his handwriting matched, but and I they were fingerprints. Somebody copied it. Um, obviously, I have the same fingerprints as somebody. <laughs> Other than the letters, the investigators had no hard evidence against Lewis, and the case went cold and has still not been solved to this day. While Lewis was never convicted for the actual murder crimes, Mm -hmm. he was found guilty of extortion and six counts of mail and credit card fraud. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison, only serving 13 before being released on parole in 1995. In In 2010, Lewis and his wife were forced by a judge to surrender DNA samples to investigators. Apparently, after his arrest, he gave very detailed plans to authorities on how the capsules could have been injected with the lethal doses of cyanide. Of course he did. He had a... No, that was the other guy. Yeah, that was the other guy. But he still claimed he had no part in the murders. Maybe he read that book, too. (laughs) Well, when he was asked about the plans he gave the, the authorities, he claimed that he was only trying to be a good citizen. And let the authorities know how it might have been done. I mean... Yeah. I I mean, that's exactly what Ted Bundy did. (laughs) Valid. The 1982 Tylenol murder did bring cause for new packaging and laws to be created. Mm -hmm. Pharmaceutical, food, and consumer product industries began to develop tamper-resistant packaging. Which I'm so happy about. Yes, such as induction seals, which, as annoying as they are sometimes, definitely helps with all of this. And product tampering became a federal crime. In 1983, the U.S. Congress... Congress? Congress. The U.S. Congress passed the Tylenol Bill, which made it a federal offense to tamper with consumer products. And in 1989... The FDA established guidelines for man- for manufacturers to make all such products tamper-proof. And thus the Powerpuff Girls were born. Yeah. No. And thus the world is now a much safer place, despite the fact that someone decided to mercilessly kill a whole bunch of people with cyanide. Yeah. But while, you know, we can't really solve their deaths... It is prevented. murders, yeah. Yeah. So, that... I don't know why, in my head, I always remembered that as having an actual ending. I always forget that... There's like, no I've ending. heard the story multiple times, but every time I forget that 
there's no actual yeah ending there is no ending there is i think in my mind i it's um it was a woman <laughs> i don't know why. that's because after the congress passed that bill where mm. it became officially illegal a woman did actually kill her husband by lacing some excedrin with maybe that's it yeah with something and then to make it seem like it was another tylenol murderer oh she gave yeah. a stranger the exact same thing yeah okay and she got caught yeah Maybe that's why. Yeah, that's probably that, why. Yeah, that's what you're thinking of. I guess I just conflate the two. <laughs> it's fine. I love that story. I mean, it's an awful story, but I, I'm, I always think about it a lot. Yeah. Because it's so interesting. And see, I'm glad you enjoyed it because I'm sitting here reading it and I'm like, oh my God, I should have added this. I should have added this. So I'm glad it was actually semi-enjoyable no yeah i always love that i mean there's always like extra stuff you can add to a story but everybody always ends up having to leave stuff out because of time and because there are things that are like just speculation and like how i for some reason i remember it as (laughs) that woman who killed her husband yeah yeah. and i mean straightforward it's good to go and then you have these dumbasses licking ice cream in 2019. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am five hours away today, guys. Um, there were a couple of things in Chicago I could have done, but I found this and I was interested. I haven't done a cryptid in a while, so. Yeah, I've been weirdly focusing on cryptids. I haven't done it in a while. You did the devil, baby. That's kind of a cryptid. That, that's not really <laughs> a cryptid. <laughs> Kind of encrypted. <laughs> okay, so today I'm doing the Murfreesboro Monster. Um, okay, my sources for this story are thesouthern.com, murfreesboro.com, which had like all of the, it was it was a 67 source, uh, 67 oh, page source one. with yeah. the police reports, pictures of footprints, letters from the public, um, and newyorktimes.com and cryptids.fandom.com. All right. Okay. Okay. So, the first sighting of the Murfreesboro mud monster was 11 p.m. June 25th, 1973. Randy Needham and Judy Johnson uh, ran into Murfreesboro PD with a reported sighting of some type of creature in a wooded area north of the Big Muddy River next to the boat ramp parking area. They told officers that they were parked on the south side of the parking area next to the woods when they heard a loud screaming sound coming from the wooded area and saw a large creature about seven feet tall walking on two legs that had light-colored hair matted with mud. Oh my. It started walking towards the car and began screaming. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the couple the couple left the area and drove to the police department judy who was inside the car said that she heard the screaming but couldn't see the creature because it was too dark randy and judy both said that no human would be able to scream or make a noise as loud as what they heard they described it as like an eagle screeching into a microphone 
I'm Googling <laughs> pictures of it. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, officers Nash and Lindsay were dispatched to the area. Oh, no. <laughs> yep, that's it. <laughs> Big mouth and all for screaming. You'll notice that there's a common officer for every single one of these. Oh, really? And I'm kind of wondering if it's their go-to if it's just that it's a small area and he's the go-to person for it or if they're if he's like the go-to person for all the weird stuff (laughs) so he's the scully and (laughs) yeah so their officers nash and Lindsay were dispatched to the area when they arrived the officers used their spotlight to search the area but couldn't find anything out of the ordinary but they did eventually locate impressions in the mud about three to four inches deep, approximately 10 to 12 inches long, and three inches wide. Mm-hmm. At 2 a.m., officers Nash, Lindsay, Deputy Scott, and the couple returned to the area with boots, because it was muddy, yeah. to inspect the area further where the creature was seen. Officers discovered prints in the mud similar to the ones I was telling you about, except they were deeper in the mud and not as long as the others. Hmm. Officer Lindsay left to get a camera to photograph the prints. And <laughs> they noticed that the prints were kind of erratic. Like, no two were the same distance apart. Some were five to six feet apart, and other prints were really close together. It's sprinting, then tiptoeing. Yeah. <laughs> After Officer Lindsay left, the other two officers and Randy followed the prints in the mud towards the river. When the officers and Randy were bent over some bent over some of the tracks inspecting them, a loud shrill scream came from the wooded area to the southeast near the river, about a hundred yards away. And Needham was like, Yep, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the officers actually um said, I was leaning over when there was the most incredible shriek I've ever heard. It was in those bushes. That was no bobcat or screech owl, and we hel- we hightailed it out of there. Mm. The officers in Needham ran back out of the woods back to the squad car to tell Officer Lindsay what happened, and they requested for Sergeant Tincher to come out to the scene to photograph the tracks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're like, we need a sergeant. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> the, this, yeah. is, this is a sergeant matter. Sorry. Yeah, this is a little bit above my pay grade. <laughs> Uh, the officers continued to search the riverbanks for hours following an elusive splashing sound like something floundering through knee-deep water, but they were unable to locate anything. Upon arrival, Sergeant Tincher photographed some of the prints in the mud and then everyone was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> but We're going to skedaddle out of here, guys. Yeah. Now retired Murfreesboro Police Chief Ron Manwaring said that there wasn't any advantage for the couple to report this mm-hmm. like they just didn't want notoriety or anything because judy johnson was married oh not to randy needham scandalous yes. they were so scared that they felt like they had to tell the police what was going on and risk their affair being discovered oh my so hmm. the next sighting was around 10 p.m uh june 26 1973 Murfreesboro Police Department received a phone call from Mrs. Harry Ray saying that her daughter and her daughter's boyfriend had just seen a large creature in the field behind their house. Officers Nash and Manwaring were dispatched to the scene. Nash. Uh-huh. Again. Okay. When they arrived, officers were met by Cheryl A. Ray and Randy E. Creeth. 
Randy and Cheryl said that they were sitting on the patio talking when they observed something moving around a patch of small trees in the field behind Cheryl's house. Both Randy and Cheryl watched and observed a large creature walk out of the patch of trees near the edge of the yard and turn around and walk back into the field. They described the creature as being 7 to 8 feet tall, weighing 300 to 350 pounds, pale, dirty white, or cream colored, <laughs> and standing on two feet. <laughs> Randy... <laughs> Randy said that he walked toward it and got about 30 to 40 feet from it. And he also said that it had like a musky odor to it. So this is a Bigfoot. Well, I mean, it sounds fairly similar, except it's like an albino. Yeah, albino Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Officers inspected the area where the creature was seen and found weeds broken down and a kind of path where something had walked through. A man named Jerry Nellis was notified to bring his dog to the area to see if the dog would track down the creature. When Nellis arrived with his dog, which was a German shepherd that was trained to attack, Mm -hmm. uh, like search buildings and track, uh, the dog was led to the area where the creature was last seen. The dog began tracking down the hill where the creature was reported to have gone. As the dog started down the hill, it kept stopping and sniffing at a slimy substance on the weeds. Ew. They found the slime every once in a while as the dog tracked it. Nellis said that he put some of the slime between his fingers, rubbed it, uh, and it left a black coloring on his fingers. And it smelled like foul river slime. (laughs) Now I know what that smells like and definitely ew. Yeah. (laughs) Ew. Each Gross. time the dog found the slime, the dog would hesitate. Is this it? Be like, ew. No. <laughs> <laughs> the creature was tracked down the hill around the pond to a wooded area south of the pond where the dog tried to pull Nellis down a steep embankment. Mm-hmm. But the area was too thick and bushy to walk through, so the dog was pulled off the trail. Um, officers then searched the entire area with flashlights. Officer Nash... Uh, Nellis and the dog went over to the area south of where the dog was pulled off the track. Nellis and the dog searched the area to see if the dog could pick up a scent, and it led them to an abandoned barn. Oh. Nellis called for Officer Nash to inspect the area because the dog wouldn't go in the barn. Okay. Nellis pushed the dog inside. Rude! And the dog immediately ran out. Oh, yeah. poor baby. But when Nash and Nellis searched the barn, they didn't find anything. Like, there was nothing there. And Nellis said that the dog was trained to search buildings and had never backed down from anything. Well, something scared it. Yeah, he couldn't explain why the dog was so scared that he wouldn't go inside. Officers continued to search the area and were unable to locate the creature. Okay. Coincidentally, when they were talking to um, the Ray family's neighbor... Dave Barrel, uh, he stated that about 10 minutes before Randy and Cheryl saw the creature, his kid came into the house and said that there was a large ghost in their backyard. <laughs> he said he thought nothing of it until Cheryl and Randy saw the creature. He just thought his kid was playing around. There's a large ghost in the backyard, Pa. <laughs> Big ghost. <laughs> Big ghost in the backyard. Oh, silly what, kids. What, what we need to do, Dad? Tricks are for kids. <laughs> now on to the third sighting. <laughs> it's I mean, a lot Um, four. Oh, okay. I thought there was going to be more. Four reported. Okay. Yeah. 
Around 6 p.m. July 7th, 1973, officers Nash and Glodo were stopped Glodo. at Rivers- <laughs> Yeah, Glodo. G-L-O-D-O. Glodo. 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 Uh, were stopped at Riverside Park by Burt Miller, owner of Miller Carnival. He wanted to report his workers seeing a large creature near the carnival area the previous morning. Miller said that he didn't report it at the time because he was afraid it would scare off customers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, capitalism it's great Uh, miller told officers the names of four workers who observed the creature otis norris ray adkerson wesley lavender uh and charles kimball kimball so the workers said that 2 a.m july 7th 1973 they heard the ponies causing a disturbance and attempted to pull loose attempting to pull loose from the trees that they were tied to behind the carnival trucks the workers went around the truck to check on them and saw a large creature around seven to eight feet tall with light brown hair over its entire body standing erect on two feet and weighing 300 to 400 pounds the creature was standing close to the ponies and seemed curious of them but didn't approach He's like, what are these? It's, it's like a little kid. <laughs> Mom, Dad, what is this big thing here? Yeah. It's like, whoa. Um, they ran to the carnival owner's trailer and reported it to him. But when he went to check the area, the creature was gone. About an hour later, Charles Kimball said that the creature appeared near the ponies again and just still just seemed interested in them. Just just looking at it. Yeah, they were just, he was just looking at them. Kimball ran to the owner's trailer, and once again, when the owner checked, the creature was gone. Oh, no. No footprints could be located in the area, and those were the only sightings until three years later. (laughs) At around 10 p.m., June 19th, 1976, Mrs. Ray Kells called Murfreesboro PD to speak with police officers about a creature her son and his two friends had just seen. Officers Nash and (laughs) Schultz were dispatched to the area. I've got a theory that it's Nash. He's a werewolf. Nash is definitely a werewolf, no, yes. Not a werewolf. Yes. Anyway, upon arrival, officers were met by Kells, her son Ricky, his friends David Taylor and Russell Ward, and their parents. Mm-hmm. The parents told police that their children had seen a large creature behind number 25 Westwood Lane standing next to the woods. The parents said that they were hesitant to call, but their children's actions convinced them that they had actually seen something. Oh. Uh, Officers were led to the area where the children claimed to have seen the creature. Officers searched the wooded area, but couldn't find any tracks. They did locate an area about 100 yards into the woods where a bunch of large rocks had recently been turned over. Yeah. So officers interviewed each of the kids. Ricky Kells age 10, said that he, David, and Russell were playing wiffle ball when they went to look for a foul ball that was hit between two houses. As he was walking down the hill, he saw a large creature standing next to the woods. Ricky hollered at David and Russell. They saw the creature and ran home to tell their parents. Ricky described it as being about seven to eight feet tall, had what appeared as large ears, and was gray in color. Creature was described to be covered with hair and did not move when they were watching it. It was gray and had large ears, so now I'm just picturing an elephant. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> Ricky said that as they were running away, he thought uh, it walked into the woods because he could hear a loud thumping like it was walking away. Mm-hmm. 
David Taylor, age 11, said that as he, Ricky, and Russell were looking for the, a wiffle ball, Ricky screamed and pointed towards the woods. When he looked, he saw a large creature standing next to the woods and ran home to tell their parents. David described it as being seven feet tall, gray in color, and he also said it appeared to have large ears or lumps on its head. Lumps. Yeah. <laughs> it's got the lumps. It's got lumps. He said that it made a loud thumping noise on the ground as it left. He also said while he was observing it, it didn't move, but he heard the thumping noise as he was leaving the area. Okay. And Russell Ward, age 13, said that while he, Ricky, and David were looking for a wiffle ball, Ricky screamed and he and David saw a large creature standing next to the woods. He said that he saw it turn sideways and raise its left arm just before he ran. He also said he heard... A- <laughs> I, I don't know if it was, like, waving or if it was just, like, turning to leaf. I don't know. Just... <laughs> he also said he heard a thumping sound as it walked away. And he described it as being tall. That was it. It's just tall. Yeah, it's tall. It was tall. <laughs> it's tall. How tall? I don't know. It's just kind of tall. <laughs> tall. I mean. Uh, Taller right. than me. <laughs> the last one. 9 p.m. June 27th, 1976. Murfreesboro police received a report from Merle Mifflin via public. <laughs> it's cute. Merle Mifflin. Wait till you hear his kids' names. Merle Mifflin. Yeah. Okay. They received a report from Merle Mifflin via public service that what newspapers and townspeople dubbed the Big Muddy Monster had been seen near his residence. Officers Ivaldi and Nash. Nash! <laughs> <laughs> were dispatched to his house on Mifflin Road off of Route 149 West. So his road is named after him. Also, I'm just thinking of Dunder and Mifflin with a... <laughs> Officers spoke with Mifflin, who stated that his children and a visitor had seen what they believed to be the big money monster. Mifflin said his two children... <laughs> Hold on. M- the big money monster? Muddy. Muddy. I heard money. Oh. And I don't even have big my headphones muddy, on. Muddy monster. <laughs> muddy. Mifflin said that his two children, Michael Mifflin and Melinda Mifflin, (laughs) they're all all (laughs) M&M's. Did you just say that? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They were playing just north of their house with their friend Karen Gruber when they saw a large animal walking through a small wooded area where they were playing. Mifflin also said that his dog was with the children and that the dog started barking but would not go into the wooded area which he said was a strange way for his dog to act. Mm-hmm. Officers, accompanied by Mifflin, checked the entire area surrounding the house on foot, but couldn't find any trace of any type of large animal. They interviewed the children, and Michael Mifflin described the supposed monster as six feet tall and weighing between five to six tons <laughs> with a black furry coat. <laughs> Five to six tons, huh? Five to six tons, yeah. He said that he observed the monster along a creek bank southwest of his house around 9 a.m. 9 a.m. Saturday, July 26th. Karen Gruber said that she and the two other kids were playing on a swing northwest of the house when she heard something walking in the woods. When the dog started barking, she observed something that was real tall, fat, and big (laughs) walking around the woods. Coming back to it. It's just tall. Yeah. And then it was walking south. And that occurred around 8.45 p.m. Melinda Mifflin was also playing near the swing. And she saw something walking. She just saw something walking through the woods. 
<laughs> Man, these kids are real great with the scripture. Yeah, real good. Some of some of the events happen at nine a.m. Others almost nine at night. Who knows? Yeah, they're tall, six tons. I mean, he was tall, fat. What tall. else do you need to know? <laughs> the police chief, Toby Berger, 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 probably Berger. Berger, said that they don't know what the creature is, but they do believe what people saw is real. They've definitely tracked it, and dogs have definitely caught its scent. He says that people around there are good honest people. None of them are gonna walk through sewage tanks for a joke. <laughs> I don't put it past I anyone. I think you'd be very surprised what people will do when they are bored. Yes. In the country. Yes. They think that they think there have been a lot of incidents that people haven't reported out of fear. Not of the monster, but of the hundreds of people who show up at each place linked to a sighting with rifles and shotguns. Lovely. Yeah. Somehow Lovely. no one has shot anyone else yet, but well, police... that's always yeah, good. somehow. But the police did have to close the park one night because it was full of hunters and curious campers. Tony Stevens, a newspaper editor, said, It's not a hoax. This is hunting country, you know, and everyone who goes around in an animal costume is going to get his butt shut off. Yes. Shot off. Shut off. <laughs> well, also shut off. Shut off. <laughs> I mean, whatever. <laughs> Local officials spoke with Harlan Sorkin, who is a St. Louis expert <clears throat> on creatures like Bigfoot. Sorkin said that the descriptions matched those of over 300 similar sightings in North America in the last decade. One of them on an Ohio River levee not that far from there. There's even been a movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek, made about a similar creature in Arkansas. Sorkin says the creature's probably a Sasquatch, um, which is believed to be a gene deviation and a large ape that's produced a different kind of creature. According to him, those creatures are shy and favor river bottoms for their ample vegetation. Even in winter in southern Illinois, there's plenty of plant life that's available, especially in the Shawnee National Forest. Yeah. Sorkin thinks that the flooding in those years where it was sighted forced the creature from its natural home, maybe a cave that's downriver. Mm -hmm. Sorkin says that they have the strength of five men, and when they're frightened, they take five-foot strides, which explains the footprints that were so far away from each other. He was scared. That's why he was screaming. Yeah. Ah! Poor baby. (laughs) It's still unknown what the creature is or if if it was just some kind of hoax. It's also unknown why dogs are so afraid of it, where it came from, but people still believe in it. I know it's out there, said uh, Randy Kreeth when he was young. It would be fascinating to see it again and study it, but, you know, I kind of hope he doesn't come back. With everyone running around with guns and sticks, he really wouldn't have much of a chance, would he? With guns and sticks. And, uh, that's the Murfreesboro monster. Because <laughs> sticks are gonna do a whole lot against a monster that is seven tons. Uh, five to six. Oh, five to six, my bad. Because yeah. seven tons is a whole lot more. That was my story. Hope you all liked it. Not in Chicago. It's fine. I enjoyed it. Jeez. I did. I enjoyed it. It's it's a Bigfoot monster. I cannot explain the, the dogs being afraid of it. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's that musky odor. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. My dogs really love musky odors, though. Like, dogs love deer poop, and that's as musky as musky can get. Ugh. It's gross. Like, it's so gross. <laughs> <laughs> all right dokie. well if you liked it even if you didn't 
you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We pop up. You can also send us an email to misfortunes at gmail.com. You better do it. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright. Our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the descriptions below. Descriptions. Description. There's multiples, guys. Yes. Please. 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 Rate. Review. Subscribe. Please. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, bye. Bye.